0: I'm going to read from uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, through to chapter 3, verse 14. It's quite a long passage, so hang in there. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. They are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with their head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your things on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Wow, a chunk of scripture. If we were unpacking this letter over a number of months rather than a number of weeks, we would find material in these verses to justify multiple sermons. They are great verses to meditate on, to read and reread, allowing the Holy Spirit to impress the warnings and encouragements deep into our souls, allowing them to transform our character. Today we're a little bit going to skim the surface, but hopefully in a helpful way. Our passage starts with this little word, therefore. And as as we've possibly been told before, a small word in Greek, but carrying a lot of weight. It points us, the reader, back to what has just been said. So what has just been said? Well, here's some more scripture. It says in chapter 2, "...for in Christ and all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority." In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sin Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Wow. We've read a lot of scripture in those two moments. As we said in our first sermon on Colossians, Paul's primary tactic in leading people out of or away from the edge of heresy is to fix their eyes on the person and the work of Christ. When Paul says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you, the inference is clear. They are being judged. It would appear that faithful followers of Christ are becoming unsure of their security and their identity in Christ because they're not behaving in certain ways. Their salvation has moved from a foundation away from Christ to a foundation of religious behaviour, which is no foundation at all. And Paul will not have this. Paul stands against this, not because he's trying to argue his own theological position or preference. Paul is not trying to defend himself. That would go against all those principles of leadership we looked at last time. No, Paul will not countenance such unsettling judgment because it stands against the very person and finished work of Christ. That's why he says, do not let. He's he's saying to the Colossians, he's saying to them, look, you have power here. You have control here. You can let these things get into you. You can let this teaching impact you or you can stand firm. So he says, do not let. Therefore, do not let. Notice all the past tenses that Paul uses in these previous verses. Here we go again. You have been brought into fullness. In him you were circumcised. Your whole self was put off when you were circumcised. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him. God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all your sins. He has cancelled the charge he has taken it away he has nailed it to the cross he has disarmed the powers and authorities he has made a spectacle of them he has triumphed over them notice the past tense this is not something Christ is doing now it's something Christ has done when you gave your life to Jesus this stuff has been done I know we're laboring the point here but Paul labors the point Because he wants people to know. In these verses that we've read, we get these little hints about those who are trying to lead them astray. This threefold warning of festival, new moon and Sabbath points to the annual, monthly and weekly festivals of the Jews. And remember, Paul doesn't despise these things. Paul's heritage is in Judaism. Paul still has rhythms in his life. But they are a shadow. This religious activity might point us to Christ, but it should never replace Christ. As a Christian, gosh, we want to read the Bible. We want to pray. We want to gather. We want to worship. We want to meet in small groups and life groups. We want to do mission together. We want to extend the kingdom of God. But all those things come out of our relationship with Christ. They're not the things that earn us relationship with Christ. And this is what Paul is challenging. He uses this phrase, they are shadows. He's echoing the language of the book of Hebrews that describes the tabernacle in all its glory and the temple in all its glory as a shadow, a shadow of the true light, which is Christ. So what does a shadow have? It has the form of the reality, but not the substance. My shadow, might you know, display my shape, which is a little bit more curved than I would like. But it's not the reality of who I am. It's just a shadow. And so the temple, the tabernacle, all these festivals were the shadow. They were a the point to Christ. And now Christ has appeared. Christ is with them. Once the reality is discovered, the shadow is meant to fade away. Paul's reference to worship of angels and additional knowledge is a a point to early Gnosticism, this belief that really kind of found purchase in the second century, that there was this kind of extra knowledge that you needed. Paul is clear, this super spirituality is actually separating people from Christ. That's why he says they have lost connection with the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body is supported. So Paul has laid down layer after layer after layer of truth about Christ to combat this heresy. But Paul's not just concerned about right theology, he's concerned about right living. Having reiterated his main point in verses 21 and 23, Paul brings us to a development of this challenge. When he says this, Such regulations, so talking about kind of these rules and this knowledge, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But listen, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And this is where we move to Paul's other challenge. So Paul has challenged heresy because it draws people away from Christ. But here he's saying the trouble is, not only does it draw people away from Christ, it doesn't help. It doesn't help in our sanctification. At one level, Paul's pastoral heart is seeking to protect the church from those who would seek to judge them and by so doing undermine their security and their value. But Paul has this additional concern that this super spirituality or this religious practice doesn't actually transform a person's heart. Now we know from Paul's writing and from the whole of scripture that our relationship with God is established by the work of God through Christ. We are justified. When we give our lives to Jesus, when we respond to the gospel, we are justified. We come into right relationship with God. Remember we said right at the beginning, Paul writes to the holy ones, to the saints. So our justification is secure. Our salvation is secure. We stand on that foundation. But alongside that, Paul is also very clear that we are being transformed. That though we are justified before God, though we have freedom and access before God, we still battle with what the New Testament calls our flesh. Sometimes the NIV translation calls it the spiritual nature. Those bits of us that are not yet brought under the lordship of Christ. We know this is true in Paul's writing because he constantly reminds his readers that he is pushing on to step into his full inheritance. 1 Corinthians 9.26, Paul says, I do not run aimlessly, but I run as one aiming to win the prize so that I don't miss out. In Philippians three verse twelve, he says, I press on to take hold of that, for which Christ has already taken hold of me. That's a wonderful verse expressing Paul's theology. Christ has taken hold of him; he's secure. But he presses on. He presses through all those bits of his character that need sorting to take hold of of uh, to take hold of that which is his inheritance in Christ. Romans 12, 1 and two present your bodies as living sacrifices. Be transformed by the renewing. Of your mind. In these verses, Paul is recognizing his own personal need to go on being transformed, to play his part in the process of what we call sanctification. Having warned the Colossians on the dangers of giving into self righteousness, trying to add stuff to make you acceptable to God, he now reminds them of the opposite danger of the flesh unrighteousness. So that's why he says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Notice that past tense. Set your heart on things above. In our passage, you notice that Paul pulls no punches in his description of the characteristics of an unrighteous life. Again, Paul is clear. We were dead in our sin, he says in Ephesians, and we were rescued from this life. But there are elements of this life that still loiter. There are elements of this life that loiter with intent, if you like, trying to draw us off track. And Paul lists some of these things here. It's not an exhaustive list. If you read down this list and think, I don't do any of those, don't think you get away with it. Because this is not meant to be the whole list. This is an illustrative list. But what does he list? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. That's a damning statement. Anger, rage, malice, which is unkindness, slander, filthy language, lies, nationalism. What does he say? There's no Jew, no Greek. Paul is very clear. These are the characteristics and the behavior of the old self, not the new self. These are the characteristics that we need to renew out of ourselves. The habits and the practices of the old self, which lurk, that kind of lurk around the corner, trying to trip us up. If the answer is not additional religious practice or fresh, mysterious revelation, what is the answer? See, Paul has said, our foundation is in Christ. Don't get caught up with other stuff. Why? Because it doesn't help you kind of get sanctified. It doesn't help you live in the good of who you are in Christ. Well, if I can't add some religious activity to help me, what do I do? Well, I think Paul gives us a number of helpful hints. Firstly, be active, not passive. Be active, not Passive. Paul is constantly bringing us back to the finished work of Christ. But he sees this as the foundation for our activity, not a gateway to passivity. Again, hear the active verbs that Paul uses. Set your hearts, set your minds, put to death, rid yourselves, you have taken off, You have put on, clothe yourselves. Do you notice all those verbs? There's nothing in this that's saying, oh, Christ has done it all, let go and let God. If you just sit back, you'll get there and be transformed. No, it's active. For Paul, Christianity is an active faith. Think about the words he uses to describe it a walk, a run, a battle. This is not denying the finished work of Christ. It's saying, no, because Christ has done this work, you can press on. He says to us, keep remembering, draw to mind what Christ has done. The victory has been won, but we need to actively live in the good of that victory. We need to be active, not passive. Secondly, he says to us, Think about what you think about. Think about what you think about. The Colossians, as we've said, were surrounded by noise, different views, different lifestyles, different cultures. It was easy to go with the flow to fit in with whoever you were with, to agree with the last view that was expressed. But Paul's advice is this, set your heart and your mind. What does he mean by that? He means this, think about what you think about. Think about what you think about. Remember your identity in Christ. Remember what Christ has done. Remember that Christ will return. What does it mean to remember? It means to draw to your mind, to think about these things. Allow a change in your thinking to transform your action. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Scripture tells us, as a man thinks, so he is. Neuroscientists are discovering that how we think physically changes the structure of our brains through neuroplasticity. And that breaking bad habits and forming good habits actually starts with the neurons in our brains. How fascinating that Paul had this revealed to him by the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago when he says, set your mind. There's, there's glimpses here, hints here of what Paul says in Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is saying this, change how you think and ultimately that will change how you behave Change how you think and let that change of thinking form new habits in your lifestyle that you will walk in. These additional practices or super spiritual beliefs won't transform you. What will transform you? Setting your mind on the right things, thinking about the right things, being active and not passive. Thirdly, Paul's hint is this. Be part of authentic community. Paul's references to community run just below the surface throughout this whole letter. Notice where they surface here. Do not lie to each other. Here there is no Gentile or Jew. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Paul is reminding them and us that transformation, sanctification is a team sport. We're transformed in community. We admonish one another. As we've often said, we need Muppet friends. We, we need people to love us enough to tell us when we're being a bit of a fool, a bit of a Muppet, when we're, we're getting on the edge of some behaviour that would be unhelpful. We need friends to tell us. We need to be in a community that tells us. And finally, we need to remember that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we need to be active, not passive. Yes, we need to think about what we think about. Yes, we need to commit actively to a community of believers who will hold us accountable. They're all things that we can do and should do. But here and elsewhere in Paul's writing, we're reminded that ultimately sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3, we're reminded that we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another by the Spirit. Paul is explicit in his letter to the Galatians that having been justified by faith, having been justified by the work of the Spirit, we need to remember that we are also sanctified by a work of the Spirit. If you've been following Jesus for a while and spent some time in Paul's letters, you might hear echoes of another letter in this letter. In Galatians, we read this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forgiveness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What did we read here? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Do you see the overlap there? Paul is here, he's saying, clothe yourself in these things. In Galatians, he's saying these are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul is marrying these two concepts. We need to be active, not passive. We can put on forgiveness. We can put on gentleness. We can put on kindness. We can choose those things. But at the same time, they are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is growing them in us. It's not that sanctification is all about us or all about the Holy Spirit. No, sanctification is an activity of the Holy Spirit in which we cooperate by being active and not passive, by committing to a community, by thinking about the right things, by being transformed by the renewing of mind. Can you see how those two things work together? My favourite illustration of this is whenever I go on a plane journey and I, I fly to Gatwick often or another airport and you have these travelators and they're moving you forward. So actually you can get on there with your with your case and you can just stand there and do you know what? You'll get to your destination. It's more fun if you take part. It's more fun if you stride out, even skip. My word, you move quickly. And it's much more fun to cooperate with that which is operating under your feet. So here, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, don't buy into this new stuff. One, because it distracts you from Christ. But two, it doesn't help in this process of sanctification. In a world which is bombarding you with unrighteousness, how do you pursue righteousness? How do we pursue our inheritance in Christ? How do we become more like Christ? Well, we cooperate with the work of the Spirit. We do that by by fixing our mind on the things of Christ. By being active and not passive, by being part of community and by going on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ has done it all, but we do not give in to passivity, we work hard. We work hard not to discover some new truth or keep some old law. We work hard to immerse ourselves in the truth about Jesus, to build a countable community, and to allow the Holy Spirit to do the amazing sanctifying work that he wants to do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the finished work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, this day, this week, this month, help us to actively cooperate that we might display more of your glory to those around us for your glory, but also for our blessing. Thank you, Lord. Amen.